With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. Stucker here. And uh, just as a heads up for the episode that you're about to listen to, this is actually a patron-exclusive episode that we have pulled in order to put up today because my wife and I are currently still in Tokyo. Yeah, so there's no way we could actually go and record one here right now. But hey, if you want to hear all of our other patron-exclusive episodes, if you want to hear the, well, at this point, it's a three-part series that we have so far done on uh, the French Revolution, of which it is going to be a six-part series, then by all means, you can go and check out Patreon down below in the links because there are still so many more episodes that we have, and they are all ad-free, unlike whatever you're listening to on, whether this is Spotify, Apple, or literally anything else. Either way, go ahead and check that out, and also make sure to check out the Sister Podcast, which has just launched here recently, The Mystery of Everything. It is led by my wife and her friend Brenna, and it is a fun one. It dives into all of the different little mysteries and all the weird little shit throughout history and also science and all this other stuff. Like, as an example, the episode that they're releasing is on USOs, which is not to be confused with UFOs. This is unidentified submersible objects like aliens underwater and stuff, which I, 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 I can't even begin to explain it. That is her job. That's from her episode. So if you want to know what it is that she is talking about, then by all means, go and check out the links down in the description. I appreciate you all and enjoy the episode. We're making this little insert here at the end of the episode because we realized that we probably needed to say this as a little bit of a disclaimer before things begin. But the content of what we're talking about today does include a lot of stuff about body types and images of people over time. So if you suffer from body dysmorphia and if you have any kind of issues with these and don't feel comfortable with it, by all means, skip over the episode or the moment you do feel uncomfortable feel free to close things down. Don't try to stick it out for that here because we do go into a lot of different stuff with people's bodies over the years. Especially how, you know, societies made women's bodies change to fit the fashion sense of the time. So just if you're uncomfortable with that, um, yeah. Just, just keep it in mind. Hello everyone, Stakuya here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to a patron-exclusive episode of the podcast, my hoes. Welcome back, and thank you all for your support, despite the fact that we are recording this now on, what, it's a Tuesday now? Monday, it's, it's, it's Monday. Okay, it's Monday. Sorry, it's it been all a long weekend. Together. It has. We were supposed to get this done Saturday, but then we had all the other sets of work that we had to get done for a series of ads that we were doing, among other projects, and it just all ended up going behind. Not to mention the news and everything what has been happening with around the world. Also, we made friends, so we wanted to um, go see, you know, how Oh yeah, socialization, out. you know, th th that whole thing. Yeah, totally. I don't just spend all day here locked in my garage. It's a rare occurrence that we um, make new friends, I And think. actually do things. <laughs> Yeah, besides the same routine of what we've ended up doing over and over again. Yeah, no, exactly. But it is still something that we had a lot of fun with, and I do apologize for getting a little bit behind. The plan is, as we're doing stuff for the podcast, is that we are going to be recording things well ahead of time here again, which is a thing that we had done for a while, and then kind of stopped doing when we got really busy with other projects. But we're getting back into that. Also, we're going to be completely revamping how everything works with Patreon, and th there's a lot of changes that are going to be coming that I'm hoping are going to make stuff significantly more beneficial for everyone involved. 
It's just we will be doing two patron exclusives a month instead of four just because writing two podcast episodes per week is a lot, especially when we have like, you know, the two YouTube channels and I'm starting grad school. So it's correct, which Gabby is not going to be able to then be involved in nearly as many things if we were trying to keep that same schedule because of what's going on there, not to mention with how the YouTube channels have taken off, especially the actual history page, which thank you all for being there and supporting all that. So a lot of the benefits that we're going to be providing are going to be specifically for that YouTube channel. But today's episode is actually something I think you guys are going to think it's super strange. We've been, we've had it close to your heart, Gabby. Is it, does it like very personal to you? Yeah, it's very, it's it's a full on supportive episode, I think. Like it's really, yeah. It's we can't be too me. restrictive with this topic. You um, know? This episode is on bras. <laughs> and I think how bras are linked to paratroopers. Oh, yes. Yes. That's where it all started here. I have a whole section later on in this because specifically Alex Root, so AMR in, in Discord here and also on Patreon, he had sent in a request to cover and talk about paratroopers and bras and how they used them in World War II. And I hadn't heard of this fact before. So that sent me down a whole kind of rabbit hole where I was researching the entire history of bras from the from like from the very beginning going into modern times. There's a lot of information on this. Well, it's also interesting because when did bras actually start being used? I was always curious about that because obviously people use corsets. Did they also use bras? Exactly. So what technically qualifies something as a bra? Like where does that fine line? That's what we were trying to research and find. Interesting. Okay, well, let's see. Exactly. So, for anyone who is confused about what we're talking about, if you are are uh, unfamiliar with bras, which I, I, in this case, I don't know how you would be. This is like in the beginning where we're starting talking about the history of things for like potatoes and apples and all that other kind of stuff. It's a very classic garment. Everyone is aware of this. The brassiere, or the bra, as the shortened version of the name goes, that is, as everyone is aware, the feminine undergarment, not undergovernment could be under government though we could be talking about that but either way the purpose is to cover to support and to change the appearance of breasts depending entirely on what type you are using this is the thing that is the intersection between fashion and function entirely depending on the type that you are getting also the type of person that you are and what it is that you prefer though that function is something that has been called into question over the years because it varies depending upon the time and the place and the type And also the societal standards of whatever it is that you want to say. Like some people think that it's like if you aren't wearing a bra, that that is inappropriate. Whereas it used to be in some places back in the the day, the idea of wearing one itself was inappropriate. Also the different shapes over time because they used to be much pointier and now they're more rounded. And Exactly. exactly. I just can't imagine living somewhere where they fully expect you to wear one all the time. Like have you tried wearing one, Steven? I have. New challenge. I broke it. New challenge. Make Steven wear a bra. Gabby, I have tried for an to put entire on day. one of your bras before and you know exactly what happened. Well, yeah, I we're going to get we're going to take you to Victoria's Secret. We're going to get you fitted and we're going to have you wear one. And then you'll re-record like a segment an an addition to this episode where it's like, "No, this sucks, yo." So it goes up on the YouTube channel, but it's just me wearing a bra <laughs> the entire time. I'm not even wearing it just on my skin. It's a it's outside it's of a shirt. shirt. It's out it's over a shirt and it's the boomer shirt. Exactly what that's what it is. Like I'd understand throughout history someone being like, "Hey, no, we need a little bit more support." Cuz didn't what was it the Scythian women, the Yes. You're, they would burn you, off their breasts in yeah. order to shoot. According to Herodotus, uh Scythian women would burn off one of their breasts 
progress going through puberty in order to be able to not hinder them when firing an arrow from like a bow and arrow. So I could understand if that society at some point was like, we need some support. We're riding horses and we're kicking butts. It's also one of the reasons why when you see for archers, if a woman has it, so you don't, you could have something that goes fully across the chest, but female archer armor, that kind of thing is literally a leather guard that goes across the breast and kind of compresses it inwards and is usually leather or something that is softer or more cushioned so that if the bowstring thwaps against Ooh. it, it doesn't hurt. Like it's something that's designed to restrict you and at the same time protect you. Because I mean, can you imagine if you're just one of those people who is particularly well endowed and then it just thwacks across your chest? Like a full-on parallel hit of the titty? It sounds not pleasant. No, absolutely not. Okay, so what was the first recorded description of a bra? We don't really know. That's the thing. Going back in and trying to do the research for all of this, you, you find different inscriptions or artwork or other things going back into the Bronze Age, but we, we totally do not really know. Like the earliest one that we've been able to find is something that came from the Minoan civilization, which if you're thinking like the Isle of, like the Isle of Crete and all of those, like we're talking about the ancient Minoans, this is around the 14th century BC and it shows something called a mastodis, which is a linen or soft leather garment which would support the breasts from underneath. Like it doesn't even cover them. It's it's underneath. Almost you could think of like a push-up bra except with literally nothing else around it. It was just designed to be there and support it, completely leaving the breast out in the open, completely visible. It was just there to act as a kind of support. And that means that if you want to count this as the bra, then you're talking about very early Bronze Age. That sounds so comfortable, actually. Mm -hmm. Very free. If you're a person who's more lightly endowed... Then, yeah, but I can only imagine. Imagine someone with who is very well endowed and how uncomfortable that would be for just being restrictive. Actually, I have no clue. Okay, no, fair enough. <laughs> I would have no clue. So <laughs> if we fast forward by around a thousand years, then you look at Greece in the 5th or 4th century BC, and women would often wear bands that would go over clothing, and these would offer at least some degree of support while also lifting and separating the breast. It wouldn't be like just the flat, restrictive ties that you'd see later on. And especially if you look at the uh, like the flapper style going into the 1920s, we'll talk about that, but it wasn't quite like that. There are actually depictions of Aphrodite wearing her own version of this, something called a kestos. And then if you go a little bit across the pond over to, well, I say the pond, that's usually the expression from like Britain over to America, but you look at, say, the across the Adriatic and you look at the Romans, then we have Roman bras or something called mamillare, which mammaries, mamillare, that, like that, that's, that's, that's the idea of it. And these were pieces of cloth that women would wrap tightly around their chest in order to cover their breast. There are many different depictions that they have of precisely things like this. And if you go, I think this was in Pompeii. There are several locations where they have similar murals, but in Pompeii, they have something called the Bikini Girls, which is a very famous mosaic, which I went here and put in the podcast below. We're probably going to end up uploading this specifically to Patreon with the other pictures that I'm talking about. But this is from the Villa Romana del Casel in Sicily. And this depicts women who are playing sports while wearing tight bandias, which were like, again, those were the restrictive bands 
that were meant to hold the breast in place tightly to not let them bounce around too much the, while women were running around and doing sports and things. The first sports bras, maybe. Basically. Because they look like sports bras or like if you've ever bought a strapless bikini top, that's you'll see the picture. You'll you'll it you'll see. It does look like a strapless bikini top. Actually, yeah. it looks very similar even the to that. different um, patterns and styles. You can kind of see like how they're wrapped, I mm -hmm. guess, which is very cool. That does make sense. And then so some young girls would oftentimes use breast bands called strophium in an attempt to stop themselves from sagging as they. That's age. just so gravity, baby. Over time, no matter what size, if you look it up, it'll happen. Unless, like, you get, like, a job, like, you know, surgery. Yeah. Which sounds thoroughly uncomfortable. But, yeah, the Romans, like many other societies at the time, would associate the sagging with old age and unattractiveness. So the Romans were just like modern-day culture. Yeah. Love that. I mean, pretty much all cultures. I don't think there's very few places that look at sagging breasts as a beautiful thing, unless it's specifically talking about something with fertility and association with motherhood. Because they usually do when you look at the, um, like, if you remember seeing the, like, idols or other statues that they would have for, like, fertility goddesses. Yeah. If you have one that is particularly well-endowed, larger, and drooping, it's the sign of a mother. And it's like these, 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 the, those are the kind of figures that are, are worshipped and seen as objects of beauty and power. So it entirely depends on what area we're talking about there. But I guess, were the Romans, like, more militaristic for their, well. Correct. For their women, I guess. So maybe that's where it came from. Perhaps. No, that's an interesting thought because it well could have something to do with it, at least in terms of how that perspective would have transitioned over other places. But also it's because in many places they weren't nearly as agricultural. You oftentimes saw those associations with societies that were either more tribal or purely agricultural because everything was dependent upon fertility and the idea of the mother and the goddess and that kind of thing. Interesting. So it varies. Um, so we fast forward even more time, and then there's also something that is like medieval bras, but these are few, far, varied, everything in between, because there, there's no kind of real industry for it, and so many of them are homemade. There have been at least four different types of them that were found in 2012 by a group of archaeologists in the Lenberg Castle in Austria, and I went and pulled up a picture of them, which, again, I will post, but they straight up look like shirts with bags without cup supports. So imagine, if you will, that you had a, a cloth shirt. Imagine almost like a um, they're, like they're a just, top. They're a bralette, babe. That's, yeah. that's a bralette. Yes, but it doesn't show it because they're so faded. But when they're describing it, imagine it, that you will, that you have a crop top. And then you cut out a hole where the, the, the breast would be. And then you put a bag inside of it. Why would why a bag? Because the bag would be there to catch... The breast, no matter the size. Oh, so it goes through it would be the a, shirt. Yeah, and then a, you... It's basically a bralette with bags for the breast because a lot of women with nothing up here, we tend to wear like cloth. It's just the wrapped cloths, basically. Like it's nothing. It can't hold much. But somebody with more would want a bag. So they put a bag on there. You know, something to really... It's not going to provide a lot of support, but it's yeah, going to It exists hold just it. to hold it. Yeah. So essentially that's what they did. They invented the bralette before the bralette was invented. Well, that does make a lot of sense because the way that they were described by the archaeologist is that one of them did look kind of like a modern longline bra with two cups and thinner shoulder straps. But we also have to remember that these, these were not made on an industrial scale at all. All the stuff that they were doing at this time was homemade. 
there was no real industry or business for any of it. So this has been something that someone just literally strung together or, or a seamstress would have made for perhaps her mistress or anything like that. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. There, was, uh, there were cases here when it came to nobility. Like you had one person, Henry. De Moldenville or Henry de Moldenville, because I know it's French. I know that I know that Henri. I mispronounced Henri. Henri, Henri you de Moldenville. Said... Oh, Henri de Moldenville. I know. I and the know double L is a y, a Y-ish sound. I don't know. It's fine. I know. So Henri, <laughs> the guy who was the You're still saying it. Weird. Henri. No, okay. Just <laughs> I'm sorry. It, it was the guy who was the surgeon to the King of France, right? The the okay. Philip the Fair, and then his successor Louis the Tenth. And he wrote in the year 1312 to 1320, quote, some women would insert two bags in their dresses, adjusted to their breasts, fitting tight, and then put them, as in like their breasts, into the bags every morning and fasten them when possible with a matching band. Like they had to straight up customize it for each individual person. That for what sounds you like a lot of work. Like imagine you're just trying to get dressed and you have to be like, Bag, bag, adjust. oh my yeah. gosh. And then as you grew, you didn't buy a new pair or anything like that. You had to make a whole new one or adjust and get a new bag or a new size. You had to prepare your own stuff. At that point in time, it's too much work. And I would have simply done what I do to this day, moved on. Moved on. <laughs> fair, fair. And so while the modern bra definitely evolved almost directly from what we see here with the medieval ages, because I mean, those pictures, as you said, yeah. straight up look like a bralette. Other cultures around the world and history have also invented garments that do serve a kind of similar purpose. Like, as an example, one of the ones that I was able to find was in China, which China has produced many different types of undergarments and things over the years uh, that are somewhat similar to the European bra and corset. And the most similar one that I could find that was simple to what we were talking about before was something called the doudou, which was a diamond-shaped garment that would be used to flatten the breast. And it said, and I quote, preserve the stomach chi. Because everything in there was like tied to your physical health and balancing your chi. And you couldn't be too restrictive, but simultaneously needed something to support not just your breast, but for a woman who was also connected to her stomach. Interesting. So, yeah, this was something that was developed in the Qing Dynasty. And I pulled up a picture of it here so you could kind of see what I'm talking about. If you've ever seen... It's a halter top. Yeah, it's, it's literally a halter top. Yeah. Except it would be way tighter. Well, that okay. So it it would provide support. It would. That was the idea. Imagine a band 
that was stylish and the purpose was it would be tied tight and bind it. In fact, they wouldn't even just do this. This is something that is done, the image that I'm showing kind of like a model. They would have something like that typically over clothing. Okay. So if you had clothes already underneath and then that was put and that would provide the tightness and support. Interesting. So the his, like the history of the bra, if we're looking at that, kind of proceeds in the same kind of style of general support, has to be individually made, has to be suited for each individual person as time goes on. But everything takes a bit of a shift going into the 16th century because a certain device gets made that you cited from the very beginning. The corset. The corset, exactly. And all across the West, they started to adopt this. Also, I feel like a corset, anyone that I've had, if you have a good one and not just a decorative one, would kind of like lift also. Correct. Ooh, it depends on but the style. I think I, but yes. I, the style and also, I guess, the person. But mm-hmm. I think it will also provide some sort of support if you got like a good one. It that like goes up. It does, though the origin behind where the corset became exceptionally popular is not for providing support. It's instead for the, uh, it's instead entirely based around the waist, which I mean, we, we would talk about before how the corset was designed, you know, enhance the bust, make the waist thinner. Like that was the idea behind it. And that's why people would bind themselves so tight to the point that they straight up couldn't breathe. I have a question. Yes. Did a guy come up with the corset? I don't know for the exact origin because people were doing similar kind of things. The one who popularized it and really made it big was a woman. Ah, uh, why would she do that? Um, For style and because French. Uh, that does sound very French. Yeah, yeah. So the, the history when we go back into it appears to have come and become really popular with Catherine de Medici. No, the Medici family? The Medici, yeah. So technically Italian, but married into the royal family of France. And that's... She was really big for everything there, right? She is a huge historical figure that we could probably do a whole podcast episode on I feel like she would be herself. like the Paris Hilton of her time. Or you know, what is that big fashion icon? I feel like Paris Hilton was pretty big in the 2000s. I'd say if you had Paris Hilton with a penchant for political intrigue and perhaps murder, yeah, that would be her. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I mean, when you are a person in a position of power as like a king or queen in, in the medieval period or going into the Renaissance. You needed to have you, yes, exactly. intrigue and a thirst for murder. Willingness <laughs> to murder, more likely. But yeah, exactly. And so, but you want to hear the real screwed up thing about it? So, so as the story goes, when it comes to corsets, is that it's cited specifically as being popularized thanks to her reign because she didn't want to anyone with a, quote, thicker waist in her court so so she wanted the thickest waist no opposite she wanted the thinnest waist yes so the the style of beauty was big bust thin waist what happened right if oh gosh you either wore the corset to to help or if the corset didn't even make you appear below i think the limitation on what they had was literally a 13 inch waist 13 inches okay that, that that's what it was and that if you um, wait, I don't think thirteen inch waist is possible, babe. I think it was it was a different kind of of style. It wasn't actually like straight up thirteen inch, but it was like the size of what they had. I can't even remember to wear. Yes, but what ended up happening is that if you did not fit the requirements of court for what she wanted, you were banned from court. From court, all of her ladies in waiting, all of the people who attended. If you you weren't even as a woman allowed into it unless you fit the queen's standard for okay. what she wanted. But that's extra stupid. And here's why. Um, 
didn't they keep all of their best nobles, like their most high ranking nobles in court? Correct. So you're going to kick them out because of the size of their waist and maybe they go off and they start a revolution in another part of your land. Perhaps, yes. Or also you are shaming them to the point that because they don't fit the queen's standard and the queen is the one that has chosen the culture that everyone has to adapt to because the rest of them do fit it. Now you have outliers who are going to be shamed by the rest of court who lose everything because their waist isn't thin enough. I literally, I, I hate that so yeah, much. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What? Exactly. So even going into the 21st century, you know, like there's the idea of the whole hourglass waist, like, like, like you have the breasts, you have the thin waist and you got the wide hips as like the hourglass, right? They're straight up pushing that. That's not something that's a recent invention. That's something going back all the way into the 16th century. That's not new. The it, early 2000s culture that has everybody messed up went all the way back to the 16th century. Exactly. And the French. Love that. Yeah. I love that. Because the thing about that culture with like the early, the 21st century, the start there, it got to the men, it got to the women, it got mm -hmm. to the children. Like it did not discriminate. Just nope. genuinely... Oh, wow. And the thing that I noticed from all of this that I found even most interesting, and we definitely will cover it, is that the, we're talking about the hourglass figure at that point. The shape of what people would want would kind of change depending upon the day and age. Like the corset, like the thin waist would still be the same, but it would also have different styles that would shape your body into different forms. It, it, Babe, point, that still happens today because did you remember the BBL culture when all of the, I think it was Kardashians that got like BBLs and everything and it was all about being curvy. And then I think sometime at late last year, people started getting all of that stuff removed. Mm -hmm. And the thing about a BBL is actually a dangerous procedure. A lot of people die. It's one of the most dangerous cosmetic procedures or something like that because you're literally, you're taking fat from an area and implanting it into another area which can move, causing cardiac issues. Like you can Ooh. die. It's like if not, it gets into your bloodstream? But they popularized the BBL and it was a body type. It was what people wanted, that standard. And then I guess they got bored with it or something happened and, and they got it removed and everyone started going back towards, like I've seen so many articles and so many videos this year that's like, thin is back in style, forget curvy. And I'm like, that is people's body types. We can't just, we don't have a bunch of money to just spend changing our body type every time somebody with a lot of money decides they're bored. There's also a key difference when talking about things for, say, fashion that you can choose for changing of clothing styles and things that accentuate or do stuff, like in the case of a corset, and something that requires surgery. Babe, I feel like back then, if, if she banned people with thin waists from her court, if she had a procedure to, like, surgically do it, she would have. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> well, Maybe that's we're what talking I'm about European monarchs back in the day and age. Yeah, of course, they would have definitely abused the power to do stuff to their populace. That's what I'm saying. Easy. It is, it's is just crazy to me that it's been this way <laughs> since the 16th century. Oh, my God. Yeah, so, I mean, when we're talking about these corsets, like, even going back into that day and age, the only reason that they were able to do this stuff in the first place is because of the material that they were made out of. Now, at first, you have to think how much harder that would have been because the corsets of the early period were not like what you would have seen in the later stuff. The, the early ones were things that were made out of cloth, of silk, of more of material that was more pliable, but then you could bind tight, but you had to actually use force to tie it. Whereas the stuff that would come later, that would end up being reinforced with things like metal, with bone. Whalebone, right? Whalebone, Whalebone corsets. Was one of the big ones that they would have there, yes, because it was such a perfect material for it. 
they would use all different kinds of stuff. And the, the bone material going into it would determine the quality and the expense of it. But the highest quality, those were the whalebone ones. That's what you'd want. Whalebone and silk with... There was another thing. I can't remember it. That's going to bother me now. But whalebone and silk were primarily the big ones. Um, I was able to find one as an example here, although I didn't get a picture. That was the Duchess of Montpensier, Anne-Marie-Louise de Orléans. She had a metal corset that was decorated with a crown. Metal. Like, like, yes. So imagine a metal corset with all of its different ridges. And then at the very top, as it goes across the breast, is just literally, it is a crown. Studded, jeweled, encrusted, all the stuff that you can imagine. It's a crown. I like the, the crown. I do not like the metal because my one of the corsets that I own, when you put that thing on, I, I lose the ability to breathe, sit, laugh, yeah, exactly. sneeze. If I wanted to sneeze, I don't know what would happen, but it probably would be bad. Exactly. Cough. I don't think I can cough. What if I had to throw up? Couldn't do it. But a metal version of that? I can only think that if you wanted to, you'd have to do that thing where you lay on the side of the bed and like hang off the side of the bed and angle your body so that it's a direct shoot to outside. I'm just versus, like, because you can't hack it up at that point. You can't breathe. I'm just thinking about it, and I'm just, I'm I'm gonna tear up. That sounds hardcore. Like bless her, but wow. You exactly, exactly. And I mean, again, it sounds incredibly luxurious, but who the hell is going to want to wear a piece of metal like that? Then you fast forward a bit of time, late 19th century, there's a British archaeologist named Sir Arthur Evans who discovers a Cretan figure that dates back all the way to 2000 BC that had a topless woman with a very small waist that was cinched with a belt. So even if we're talking about things for an hourglass figure, you go back to enough time. This kind of standard idea has always been a thing, at least among certain people. And people were always using things, even if it was only belts, to bind them before they had better technology or understanding of what would cause what to be able to do these things. It's gone on forever. Moreover, when talking about the ancient Greeks, they also invented women's undergarments that would cinch the waist higher and also would make the bosom appear smaller. And the reason we were talking about the whole smaller thing, because that is a that is a style that would change depending on the time, place, and period we're talking about, is because the Greeks, in many places, espoused a more um, boyish figure as being beautiful. So a, a woman with larger breasts was not what they would wanted. They wanted someone that was tiny all around. Oh, you, I yeah. should have been Greek yeah. back you, in you, that time period. You would have been ideal for that. It would have saved a lot of bullying, actually. Exactly. Um, so not all those corsets that we're talking about are the same. They, they are extremely varied. And European corsets that at the beginning of the 16th century created a very recognizable form that featured aristocratic women's bosoms being pushed upwards, which made her upper half appear fuller, while the middle would be tapered inwards. So it's weird, because then remember what we were talking about with rest and everything else before being bound? Yeah. In the transition over that 150 to 200 years, if you look at the 14th century, where the early forms of corsets or other things that they had were binding in the same way that the Greek style had so that it made them appear smaller, the 16th century was all about boosting up the breast and making them look bigger. That was the whole point of it. More importantly, the corset marked the transition in fashion where women would attempt to change their entire body shape to fit the fashion of the time because that wasn't the thing before. Before, you just had to train. Now it was, you need to have the items that are going to accentuate it even further. This is making me actually very depressed because I 
was looking at the transition just since I've been alive and looking at how body types have come in and out of fashion. Yes. And I'm like, this is awful. Like, what are we doing? And now to know that they have been doing this for centuries, that is actually quite upsetting because it's a body type. We can't just decide we don't like it and just move. What? Yeah. Centuries? Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Not oh, even just centuries, is... millennia, going back in all different kinds of places. Wow, that is, that's why I think everybody just needs to stop caring. <laughs> if we don't care, what does it matter? So this is talking about all the different stuff with the corsets. And it it does change over time because you're thinking at, the, at, at this point of the classic Victorian style corset. The stuff when you're looking at the Regency dramas and all those different things, how the women are depicted in it. That's what you're imagining. And then so you fast forward going into the middle to the end of the 19th century and everything really begins to transition once again at that moment. Because at this point, you have corset substitutes and bra-like undergarments where they're, where they're not quite corsets, but they're not quite bras that are being patented all over the place with basically no kind of real market penetration. Like these things don't catch up. Don't look at me when I say that. Don't look at me like that. Sorry, I have the, you said the word penetrate, I can't hear it. When something penetrates the market, you know exactly what that means. It means that it was able to make an impact in it. Yes. Okay, okay. Anyway, that's the whole point is that you have all these different groups, all these different inventors, men, women, or men, women, everything. They, they, They are making all these varying different types that are being individually made and perhaps sold, but they don't ever really make it on an industrial level. They don't become any kind of dominant company or anything like that. Instead, it's still something that is suited towards the individual. As an example, in the year 1893, you had a woman by the name of Mary Tuck, uh, Tuckick who patented a brassiere that included separate pockets for the breasts and straps that went over the shoulders, as well as having hook and eye fastening, which looks extremely similar to modern bras, but it never took off. Why? It's not one of the things that ended up selling. It wasn't in for the fashion at the time, didn't have the material, too expensive, just not something that people were able to produce on an industrial level. There wasn't any real reason. 
And then there are varying different sources that describe different people as being credited with being the first person. But the most common one that I could find stated that Hermine Cadol, that is the individual that could be considered as being the inventor of the modern bra because she showed a corset bra that was actually a two-piece. So it was a two-piece undergarment that was made of a corset that was just cut in two. And you would mix and match depending upon what it is that fit your particular form. So it wasn't just a one-size-fit-all entirely. Instead, you would have the top part of the corset that would bind and be hooked to the bottom part for your waist, depending on the size of your waist, and that would be the top part, the first bra. But it was something that was then called a split corset, because it was a corset that was split in two. That was the idea of it. And this was something that was sold for years, but it wasn't until 1905 that the bra, and exclusively the bra part, I don't know if that's actually going to be picked up by the microphone. I just elbowed my, my or I just elbowed like the bench really hard. But that part would not be sold until 1905. And she showed this at the World Fair in 1889. Correct. For reference of the time frame. Correct. So, so it still took like almost... Chicago World Fair? Yeah, it almost took like 15 years for that to be sold separately. Because yeah. I guess people are still really into corsets. Not to mention everyone at the time was showing off the... Uh, what would you even call it? Experimental goods. It yeah. wasn't. It wasn't anything that was the standard at the time, but people were showing the innovation and invention that they had. So that, that's where that comes into play. And when we're talking about these corsets and the Victorian era and then going into the early 1900s, as I said, the name of the game for these things was that they were rigid. These things suck. You described yourself having to be put into the ones that we have now and how difficult it can be to breathe. Imagine what they were back in the day when they were significantly more restrictive and simultaneously, that was the standard of what you needed to have. I don't even wear the fancy ones. I wear the cheap ones you get on Amazon because the one that I have that is a real solid corset, it is so tight. It is so stiff, rigid, if you will. Wearing it is not something I would ever do on purpose. Like maybe if I were to be punished for something, stick me in a corset. Yeah, corsets and the um, and in general, the whole Victorian fashion didn't really give much room for... Uh, maneuverability or fluidity or any of that. In fact, one of the things that I was able to find, and I realized this is something that stuck out to me from when I would see cartoons or or just old depictions where you would see a Victorian style if you've ever seen artwork. And if you had a woman that was perhaps a little bit larger that was put into one of those style of Victorian gowns with a corset and it, I mean... It turns them into just straight up and down, like there's no form there's no definition i guess yeah and and their front like the, the thing that was described as it was being monoboob that it becomes something that is so compressed and large that it becomes like a singular mass mm -hmm. and this is what they would have because there was no there was no maneuverability to it there was no there, uh god what's the term that i'm trying to look flexibility flexibility would be the best term there was nothing that could be applied for different bodies because it all tried to conform them into the same kind of shape that they would want wow exactly then, fast forward a little bit of time, past the Victorian era, going into the Edwardian era. So during the Edwardian era, women would step away from the much stiffer corsets, and in exchange, they would use more often just simple like girdles. And these early iterations of the garment would consist of weaving a type of fabric tie in and out from the back. So when you would look at these girdles, they would go all the way from their butt up to the back and the breast. 
And what this would do is create a kind of, and I'm going to try and make it with my arm, but I'm not really able to. No one can the, see it. No one can <laughs> see it here. But if the, the S shape. So yeah. Did you ever see any of those early cartoons where they would have like uh, like the like flapper women or or others that the early style cartoon woman would show their butt being bent back out, their heads turned slightly upward with their noses. Perhaps they would have the long cigarette or something. And when they walk, it would almost be kind of like a duck waddle. Yeah. So that. So they wanted to look that specific way. Yeah. Like with the S curve of their entire body. To where it's still the arched back, yes, basically. The arched back. You know exactly what I'm talking oh. about. Oh, ow. Yeah. So that, believe it or not, there were doctors that were straight up pushing that as being in comparison to the restrictive form of what they had for the previous era of those corsets. These new styles were better for women's health. Because talking about the early 1900s and medicine and exactly what people were pushing at that time. Yeah. yeah. How did these... Okay, actually... I know how they gain traction. One person hears it. They're like, oh my gosh, you would not believe what I heard at the doctor. And then it's a doctor. So everybody believes the doctor. And that doctor is like, ha full of shit. Yep. So it took all the way until going into the, the roaring 20s for people to really abandon the corset altogether in favor of the modern bra. And that's at least in general. People would still utilize it, but it wouldn't really die out until later on. But we're going to cover that. Then in the year 1907, you have Vogue, which calls Cadol's bra design, the, the top half that we talked about before, the one that was a split corset. Yeah. They call it the brassiere. And that brassiere gives the garment its name for the first time, and this ends up getting added to the Oxford Dictionary four years later in 1911. So that's when that comes about. Awesome. So they existed for much longer. We just didn't have a name for them. Correct. Because now you're starting to see these things being produced more on an industrial level. And being more widely accepted as, like, what we should wear. Yes, and appealing to people more. That was a really big factor here. Because then you go in 1910, and Crosby, had they, they she the story behind this, this, this girl here is that she purchases an evening gown, right? This is one of the most commonly cited stories behind it. She purchases an evening gown for a social event, but then she finds that the corset that she has for it ends up still poking through the fabric because it, it's sheer. It, it's significantly more flimsy and weak so in her frustration what she does is she goes and gets two handkerchiefs and a ribbon and she ends up fashioning out an early form of bra that is then very comfortable very similar to what you were describing as what would essentially be a bralette made out of handkerchiefs oh just you know one of those dresses where the top part is it looks like two handkerchiefs tied together and it ties at the back yeah yeah wow. oh man the evolution of fashion yeah and so when this happened, right, it ended up being such a big deal because she goes to this party and in comparison to a lot of the girls around her that are utilizing corsets, she's able to dance and move and do all these things. And it ends up becoming something where all the women are coming up to her and trying to inquire as to how she's able to do these things. It becomes such a big hit at that party that she gets multiple requests after that to make her own handmade version of what she did for them. So she then goes on to found her own company. Wasn't she a socialite? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Big socialite. Okay. So yeah. that makes a lot of sense how she was able to just change the stream of fashion at that time. Oh, yeah. Upper class, well-known by society, has the freedom and the money to be able to do these things big time here. So she eventually goes on and founds the Brazier Company or the Fashion Form Brazier Company in order to make and sell this specific type of garment. And then she patents that in 1914 using the name Carice Crosby for her business. The corset, 
as we talked about, would still exist, but it would gradually over time start to go out of fashion. What would really begin to kill it was World War I, because in World War I, everything became significantly more valuable in terms of material. So it caused a huge metal shortage, which is something that you really needed for corsets, and that just wasn't something that was necessary for the war effort. So all the metal that was available ended up going towards war production, rather than, you know, being used to accentuate women's breasts. Wasn't something that they needed. They were finally able to focus on something other than how a woman's body looked. Yay. Killing each other. Yes. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh. So at the same time, because this is, remember, World War I, and while it's not quite the same stage as World War II, more women are starting to go into work at this time and live outside of just the home. And so the corset was no longer something that was nearly as practical as it was Imagine before. trying to do a job. Like, you're even if you're just sitting at your desk or whatever, you're trying to do a deep sigh and stretch and you're in a corset. Oh, God, no. It would be awful. It would be absolutely awful. Because you do this, you'd stretch up, but and also, then your arms might get stuck. Wasn't there a lot of factory work, too? So, like, a corset in factory conditions? Oh, my God. Imagine with the heat and the machinery stuck inside of a factory wearing a corset where you could barely breathe. Oh, no, I don't want to imagine that. Thank you. Oh, that is no, thank you. I hadn't even considered that when I was writing that. But yeah, that's that's entirely true because yeah. they did end up changing a whole bunch of stuff when it came to factories. And I know I have information on that for World War Two with a very funny tidbit from Lockheed Martin, which I'm, I'm going to mention in this because that was hilarious when I found it. So in in the early 1920s, right, there was the trend for wearing bandos They like the, the just like thanks to the flappers, those strips that were just going to bind the breast because they liked the flat boyish look for for these dancers and they would wear that to flatten their chest. And because that design was extremely easy to fabricate, even at home, it started to become popular for women everywhere there among the Western world. But it really wasn't until the 1930s when mass production of bras would amp up and the term brassiere then became bra. Beforehand, bras would be manufactured on a limited scale based on whatever it is that they needed for that local community. You didn't really have major companies that were producing stuff for nationwide on large scale. It just wasn't something that was developed. And then so in the year 1932, you have SH Camp and Company that goes and creates the first ever sizing for bras. Because before, you had two forms. One size fits all, and then small, medium, large, basically, with no sense of standard of what could qualify as any of that. Similar to when you go and you buy children's clothing nowadays or women's pants, and there is no semblance of size, it feels like, because you'll get... You're just guessing. You're like, uh, this so this is a four. Could be a size zero or it could be a size 14, depending on whatever brand you're but looking at. But then no sometimes idea. they go like four, six, eight, ten, twelve, and up, and then they go, well, actually, this is a 28. A yeah. 28 what? Yeah. <laughs> There's, uh, yeah. There's okay. no semblance of it here. But is this the same scale we use today? Correct. So the first ever iteration what they had here was the A, B, C, and D. And that's what they would have. There so they just stopped there. They were like, if you're bigger than a D, then good luck, Chuck. You'd have to get something that would be custom fit. But you also have to remember, considering the day and the age, there was significantly less people that fit that bill. What about the double A's? Oh, I guess nobody's, you nobody's expecting... A double A to need a bra. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or you uh, just wear a band here. That was the type. So they would have that. And the, this is when elastic starts to really become a thing. Uh, not to the same degree as it would later, but this is where it starts to be introduced. So you see more variability in terms of the sizes oh, to be able also, to Also, I'm not making fun of double A's. I, myself, am one. I was just 
it was self-deprecating. You know, it's not. It was. Yeah, I'm not trying. Sure, yeah. No, we get exactly what you mean. But you would have appreciated what came after then, because this is where the not it's not only support, but simultaneously stuff that helps and not just accentuates what you have, but adds to it as well. This is where you start to see those forms. So into the 1940s, you start to see more of the torpedo style. And this gets introduced in the oh. 40s when women began to transition from working at home to working straight up in factories, in labor intensive jobs going into World War II. Because when they worked in factories, they found that they needed a bra that would contain more padding for protection and movement. Is that why it was pointed? Because I've seen the pictures of the bra that looks a little bit pointed. And so everybody makes fun of it. Like every single TikTok I've seen has always been like, haha, oh my God, look at this style of bra. Would you wear it? I didn't know it was actually like. Straight up for protection. Yeah, yeah that makes a lot of sense. Because I was like, that is an interesting design choice. Like who would call attention to that area in such a way? But like, yeah, for protection and padding. Duh. Yep. You see it in the late 40s going into the 50s. That's really that style when you see the, the, the most famous person who's depicted wearing that is Marilyn Monroe. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? <laughs> you get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the hosts of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser known figures, for instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. Like that, that's, that is the iconic image that you have of the torpedo style uh, bra. And it would offer full protection, not just the under or like the under half of the breast, but it would cover everything to protect it from the machinery that could potentially hit you straight up in the chest and simultaneously offered support. And that second world war, that was a huge impact on all of this, especially in places like the United States, which was producing so much of the material for it. Military women were enlisted for the first time in the lower ranks, and they ended up getting fit with standardized uniform underwear. So there was Wilson Goggles, which was a Pennsylvania firm manufacturing safety equipment for manual workers. And that is the company that is believed to have introduced the first plastic safety bra. A, a kind of design that was meant to protect women on the factory floor 
and the advertising that they put out would appeal to patriotism and the concept that bras and girdles and these things, that this was the armor that was going to protect the ladies at home that were going to be working on behalf of the men that were fighting and dying. And like, that was their armor. That was their protection. And then, so they have that and many companies start to standardize them with dress coats. Like here's the part that I was talking about with, with the whole thing with Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin goes and informs their workers that bras aren't just something that you should wear. They're required. They are standard because you have to wear them for good taste, anatomical support, and morale. That is the quote. Wait. So they made it, you had to wear them. Yes, a woman who worked for Lockheed Martin was required to wear a bra because protection in the first place for herself, for good taste because it was the style of the day and they had to be able to be presentable and that was the fashion that they needed to happen. And then morale, because men just straight up thought it was hot. I hate that. Wow. But it, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Purposes. The lawsuit that that would happen. That would happen for me specifically. And I'm sure a lot of others. Just look at that phrase though. What? You had to wear a bra because of morale. Whose morale? It wouldn't be mine. Keep up your morale in the same way as like support your men like a push up bra supports you. <laughs> I mean, that is, uh, that is a great uh, slogan. <laughs> I hate it. Good job. <laughs> and, wow. And on that note, it brings us more close to the end that it brings us to the point that started all this in the first place. The paratroopers. The paratroopers, yes. Because that's where I started going into this. And when I was researching and going through and finding everything for it, I'm like, dang, this is pretty interesting. We need to cover this entire topic, which is why I had to go all the way back, right? But the the whole thing that starts this entire podcast is bras for paratroopers in World War II, and I'm going to explain it. Wait, bras for paratroopers? Bras for paratroopers. They let women be paratroopers in World War no. II? No. I don't know why I thought that no. was a thing. And also, confusing for a number of people, because you search paratrooper bras in World War II, it's not a bunch of paratroopers wearing bras. Which is whatever I thought it was going to be at first. I was really hoping it would be no. <laughs> no. What it was, was a vest made for pigeons. Wait. Birds, like the pigeon bird. Yeah, exactly. I've been bamboozled. <laughs> yeah. So the pigeon vest was a vest that was created specifically in order to be able to protect the carrier pigeons that were sent as part of the standard equipment for paratroopers when they would jump, you know, when they would parachute through the air and they would be strapped to the chest of that paratrooper during World War II. And so once the paratrooper would hit the ground behind enemy lines, the only way that they could communicate with their headquarters or doing anything, giving updates or requesting reinforcements or anything, was by sending a pigeon. So you would jump with the pigeon equipped to you once you got to your position or whenever you needed to send a message, unhook, tactical pigeon, write out the message, gone. There you go. And that's what it would be. And so then you're probably going to look at this and go, okay, this doesn't make any sense. What the hell does this have to do with brassiers? That doesn't make sense. Well, the pigeon vest was designed and manufactured by a brassiere company. That was the whole point. Maidenform, one of the really big manufacturers for brassiers at the time. 
And it was on December 2nd, or not 2nd, December 22nd, 1944, that Maiden Form agreed, through contract, to make 28,500 pigeon vests for the U.S. government. They had to switch from, as many companies had to do at the time, from peacetime production of just bras to instead produce the necessary equipment that was needed for war. So they didn't just make pigeon vests. They also made parachutes. They made, uh, like, all the different supplies that would go into that a bra company was capable of making, padding or anything else, that was specifically needed for military personnel. So that's how a bra company became involved in World War II. So the paratroopers did not wear bras. No, they would have vests. And, and actually, from this, I pulled up the picture so you can see exactly what I'm talking about, and we're going to post these to Patreon. But here's a blueprint of what it looked like in the first place. It looks so, like a pigeon corset. <laughs> it literally looks like a pigeon corset. You're right. I'm literally in tears. So it's a little vest that would go around the pigeon, and it, it's hooked all in here. It's got a little string in back, you know, so you can tie it up tight so you have it. And then here's the little belt that would, uh, and the strap that would cinch to the, uh, to the, to the, to the chest of the paratrooper, and that's what that looked like. And this is like the early blueprint design for maiden form and what they utilized. And then I wish this was on video because you guys, I am in <laughs> tears. I think what I'm gonna have us do is we're gonna take our patron exclusives, we're gonna video those when we record, and we'll post them to the YouTube channel as a member only, and we'll share it to Patreon. Oh, that's a great idea. That way, you guys can actually see <laughs> what this looks my like. reactions because I cannot. So this is the early form of the pigeon vest, dated from June 19th, 1944. Right. And the vest was made out of porous material with a tighter woven fabric underneath so that the pigeon's claws wouldn't be able to damage the mesh and either hurt itself or break free. And it also included the adjustable strap for the paratroopers to strap across their chests. The vest was then shaped to the body of the pigeon, which would leave only their head, their neck, the little wingtips there at the bottom, their tail, and the feet exposed. Every other aspect of the body was completely covered. And then the vest would be attached to the outside of the paratrooper's jacket. And then, Gabby, do you want to see what it looks like? Yes. Here we go. There he is. It's like, it's just like a little sec. You know that feeling where, um, you know how, uh, uh, when you're transporting like a, like a little chihuahua or something. Yeah. And they have like the little strapping system. Yeah. It looks like one of those, but for a pigeon strapped to a paratrooper's chest. A guy and his pet pigeon. Did the pigeons enjoy jumping? Oh, they could fly. So they probably are not afraid of heights. Okay. I was like, can you imagine? Jumping with another type of animal who was afraid of heights strapped to you. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, they would straight up do that at, cer at certain points. What here. would they jump uh, with? Some specialist forces would on occasion jump with tracking dogs on other things if they needed to. It entirely depended upon the location, the place, and what they were doing. And that was rare. That was not part of standard equipment. But on occasion, you have specialized teams that would jump with other, other types of things. Were the dogs okay? Yeah, they were trained specifically for it. Have you ever for seen jumping like, out of planes? Have you not seen paratrooper dogs before? They're really cool. Uh, my dog gets anxious if I don't hold his hand. Oh, Booker would fail this horribly. Wow. Absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. But that image here, which will definitely go up on a Patreon, that is the uh that's the paratrooper pigeon. That's what I was able to find. You guys, this is my favorite episode we've ever done. <laughs> and so, as I said, these pigeons would carry messages that were in tiny capsules that were attached to their leg. And the capsules contain any number of things. It could be messages, it could be blood samples, even tiny cameras or like film if they had taken pictures and now they needed to send it back to headquarters to report. And oftentimes these carrier pigeons, also called homing pigeons, were really the only form of communication that soldiers on the front line would have during World War II because you didn't really have the, uh, 
like you could have a radio operator, but what happened if your radio got damaged? And even then, the radios of the day when they were when they were messaging back were huge affairs. So if anything went wrong with it, the most reliable form of communication that you really had were were pigeons. The it Germans is, had the Enigma machine, and we had pigeons. Oh, all everyone had pigeons. All of them used it, at both sides. And not only that, but guess what? Remember how people would train stuff like attack dogs and other things? Did they train attack pigeons? No, hawks. You're joking. No, one of the techniques that was used to take out enemy pigeons was either shooting it straight out of the sky with a gun, like you would use anti-aircraft guns with burst rounds to try and hit pigeons that you saw in the sky, because that could be enemy messages. This was a thing in like World War One. Duck hunt IRL. Yeah, or, or hawks. That was like the great danger of the day is like if you, you, you could did have they, places that would have hawks that would try and go after them if they saw them. Did the hawks get pretty little corset vests? No, they had hoods. Okay. Like Assassin's Creed Fine. style hoods, basically. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, these were oftentimes the most reliable form of communication you had. And so homing pigeons were the least likely form of communication to be intercepted. More than 95% of the messages that were sent out via carrier pigeon succeeded in making to their target. Sounds like the Hawks weren't very good at their job. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's very hard to hit them. You had to do whatever it is you could to try. And so due to the obvious necessity for wartime communication, something along the lines of over 50,000 carrier pigeons ended up being trained and used in World War II. This was the highest point of carrier pigeon use in history. And then the pigeons' average speed was around 50 miles an hour, and their average flight distance was 25 miles or so, and they were capable of traveling up to 2,000 miles, but that was not something that would happen. Like, you wouldn't have to do that, especially for the short-form communication. These would help with all the different forms of tactical gains that could be made on the battlefield, but also was just used in general to save lives. Like, here's one of the point. You're a paratrooper. You've landed beyond enemy lines. You are trying to communicate your position to your allies so that you don't get hit by freaking bombs. Because the entire time that you're back there, your allies are firing artillery rounds and also launching airstrikes in that entire area, right? So there was a, a key point I was able to find here. There was a story, um, a pigeon by the name of G.I. Joe, who had carried a message to cancel out a bombing mission, and in doing so, ended up saving the lives of around 1,000 allied troops that were in that area. They, there were a number of pigeons that straight up received Medal of Honors for everything that they had. So after World War II, because now we have to go beyond the whole thing with the pigeons, bras at this point start to vary in all different types of forms. From the fabric they're using, the shape that they're coming in, the patterns, the designs, all these different things start to emerge. And in comparison to the tighter torpedo bra of earlier, by the 1950s, you have the bullet bra. How that is that is the different? One that you're, well, that's the one you're thinking of more for like the Marilyn Monroe that's straight up pointed. Okay. Because the bullet, remember you think of a bullet, like it has the casing and then it has the actual bullet tip that st sticks out on the other side. Yeah. So that's what that is with the pointed tips. Whereas the torpedo was more like a round conical like shell that would be like this. So it's like conical versus straight pyramid almost. Sorry, before we move on fully to bras, pigeons, we should definitely do an episode on pigeons because it actually makes me really upset how we use pigeons for so long. We domesticated them and now we treat them like pests and it's literally our fault that they're domesticated and they survive off of us it's because true. we did this to pigeons and now we're like, oh my God, these darn pigeons, like we did this. Shut up. Yeah. Anyway, we should do a pigeon episode because I have a lot of feelings. We could. <laughs> about pigeons. We could. 
And so this is the image that I was talking about before that is um, that is cemented by Marilyn Monroe. The bra would use spiral stitching around it in order to create the torpedo-like appearance that we were describing with the pointed tips. And that's the whole bullet aspect that it would Which have Which is here. so funny because anytime anyone has ever said to wear a bra, it's because they don't want to see pointed tips in that general area, so... Yeah, but the strength of this is that when they would have the stuff at the bra, because everyone would be wearing it, it doesn't matter, right? It's a whole thing of, like, if everyone's doing it, no one really is. I'm going to bring back the torpedo bra, the bullet bra. I'm going to yeah. bring it back. Well, it, it was really popular, and there's a key reason as to why it was really popular. Because of the way that it was shaped, it may have been really similar to the 1940s one, but if you had a woman with very large breasts, the, the shape of it was very accommodating for them. So it was quite comfortable for the time to be able to wear because you wouldn't have to deal with nearly as much because it allowed for so much room. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you were a person who was not so well endowed, even if you were using a smaller version of it, it still almost acted like an early form of push-up bra in the sense that it gave the appearance of there being more than there actually was. Perfect. I'm really going to bring it back. <laughs> So that was uh, that was a bit of enhancement that they would receive. The 1950s also saw the rise of the underwire bra. Boo, tomato, tomato. I'm sorry. I know. <laughs> underwire. I know. And while this is something that had been invented back in the 1800s, it only really became widely available because of material and factories and everything else going into the 1930s. And then the 50s was the decade where it really started to get popular. Fast forward a little bit more time, and you have the push-up bras. So... While a lot of women liked the accentuated look of the bullet bra, it didn't really provide the natural oomph that we now associate with uh, with push-up Please tell bras. me you didn't say natural oomph. oomph. Seriously. No, I, I did. Because when you're talking about it before, it was a bullet and it was just straight up basically a cone. But it wouldn't actually accentuate the stuff that was already there. That was mm -hmm. the whole point of it. So that's where they then introduced the push-up bra. And this comes from a Canadian designer by the name of Louise Poyer, who creates the first push-up bra and patents this design through Wonder Bra. And it's a deep plunge bra that was designed to lift and push breasts together, creating, and this is the quote that directly comes from the, the patent, unforgettable cleavage, starting a new era for undergarments. Unforgettable cleavage. Unforgettable cleavage. That was the whole point because the entire purpose was advertisement, right? This is the 60s, Gabby. This is the era of free love and birth control and everything. So sexy styles and accentuation, this is where that really starts to become a thing. It is a game changer for a lot of people. And Wait, it was not the era of free love because it was the 60s, babe. And we couldn't be married in the 60s until the late 60s. Married. But that's not free love, baby. Oh, uh, right, 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 right. Yeah, right, right. I see. You get right. what I mean there? I, I get what you're... Yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad to. Glad to. <laughs> <laughs> and so you fast forward a little bit more time. 1977, the first sports bras end up going into the market. Because for all the advantage that you had with modern bras and the way that they were developed at that time in the mid-1900s, there was one area that didn't really get helped all that much. The best area. The most comfy, supportive bra you'll ever need. The sports bra. <laughs> they didn't really have anything that was designed for movement. Like, yeah, the bands that were restrictive, they didn't let things bounce around, but not letting something bounce around is a very key different thing than being comfortable to wear while moving. Sports bras are just elite. Exactly. I'm sorry. Huge fan. So over time here, as more women started to participate in sports and started working out in doing different routines, designers realized that women were going to need a bra that was 
restrictive, but also simultaneously supportive and comfortable. Like it had to be able to restrict them while simultaneously being not so restrictive that they could do anything that they wanted to. And so the sports bra would trace its origins all the way back to early theater, where they would have these prototypes that were made of two jock straps that were sewn together. And this is what created, and I remember hearing, like seeing writings of this when I looking love at old that. manuscripts, jock bras. Yeah. <laughs> Straight up called jock bras. So and they actually, it was made for like two, the shape, I guess, of two jock straps just sewn. That yes. actually makes a lot of sense. And so jock bra became jog bra. And then jog bra, just sports bra, like jogging, like for, for to, to move. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And so these were made with stay in place elastic and this bra would provide full coverage with a high degree of support to keep breasts secure during movement. And nowadays you'll see sports bras of all styles and different levels of comfort depending entirely on the user. Of course, I'm saying this now, things did not stop there. Designs would continue on for many years, even going in today's day and age where there is innovation every other week with some kind of new thing being developed for some new body type or whatever it is that you would want to say. But I think the gist of what it is that I wanted to say has been said now at this point. And really, who can say where we're going to be 100 years from now? I have no idea because all the majority of this episode was just the last 150 years from what we've been talking about. Who knows where we're going to be 100 years from now? Wow. That was a trip. I'm not going to lie. I was concerned. I had no clue where it was leading to. But, man, am I glad I was there for the ride. Oh, yeah. And so on that note, thank you, Amar, so much for sending in the suggestion of covering this in the first place. Thank you for sending me down that rabbit hole doing the research for all this. And I really do hope that a lot of you appreciate what it is that we did. Because this this episode, when I was researching and I was making everything for it, I was like, oh, my God, this straight up reminds me of the first episode that we ever did on potatoes, where I'm just pulling tangents out of everything. When I found that Lockheed Martin fact, I was like, oh, my God morale baby it's for morale <laughs> but let us know in the comments what you guys would like to see next and we hope you enjoyed this episode bye goodbye everyone hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.